Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cover. I'm John Perry. And today we're discussing Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st Century, which is uh, the most talked about economics book to come out this year. And it's such a long, involved book that we're going to actually break this podcast up into two parts. So this week is the summary portion. We're going to try to summarize all of Piketty's major arguments as they apply to inequality and ideas of divergence or what causes growth in inequality over time versus convergence, which causes declines in inequality. Right. And that's the basic uh, thesis of the book. And I actually slogged through this whole thing, all 650 pages of it. So basically, I, I read this book, so you don't have to. You're going to hear a lot to... of Ted's voice, because <laughs> yeah. uh, he actually read everything. I read uh, selected chapters enough to be up on it, but uh, he actually did the work here, which I think a lot of reviewers did not do. Well, that was the real reason that we decided to do this, was I read a bunch of reviews of the book, and I felt from reading them that the people writing the reviews maybe hadn't read the book, and so I decided to read it myself. It's a big thing, but I think it's going to be really important, and we're going to keep talking about these concepts uh, going forward, so I think it's um, it's worth going over. Yeah, so after we've laid the groundwork uh, with a summary, uh, next week we're going to talk more about this from a futurist perspective, as far as making predictions about the future, and that's kind of bringing, you know, our usual perspective that we have. And interests into this, yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he, he has these predictive theories, so we'll, we'll bring those into a speculative space uh, next week. But right now, let's, uh, let's just get into the book itself. So just to start off, why, uh, why does this book exist? Um, it, it does sort of uh, lay out in its introduction what it's here for, and I think it's trying to fight against two existing... Uh, visions that uh, already exist in economics, but that are like highly ideological and not really very based on data. One is the classic vision of Marx, which is that private capital always accumulates and capitalism is essentially a rigged game, which was an intuitive claim that Marx made at the beginning of the industrial era. And as Piketty notes, he didn't have any data really to back up his claims other than like one factory's books for a few years that he had gotten from the sure. factory owner. So he was, you know, obviously ahead of his time and he was thinking on these uh, things on a very abstract level, but his claims don't carry a lot of empirical weight. And then in the 50s in America, a guy named Simon Kuznets became a top uh, intellectual economist, and he believed that growth and competition in markets would decrease inequality and increase social harmony. And he basically also had no data to support this view. This was He was looking at some early 1950s post-war data and uh, just extrapolating. This book exists to try to fight against both of those ideologies with um, with a huge store of empirical data, really the biggest set of this type of data, uh, what they call the World Top Income Database, a huge database that they've put together over 20 years on how much people are making at various times and places uh, to come up with a, a more empirical and less ideological uh, formulation of, of how money works uh, on a macroeconomic level. So it's a, it's a big, big book with a big thesis that has uh, profound... Uh, consequences for economics as a as a social science, and it's been obviously uh, hotly debated since it came out. Um, since it seems to try to basically reconcile Marxism with free market economics. Well, and I, inequality is clearly a hot button issue right now. Right, he thinks that democratic institutions ought to, and these are his words, regain control over capitalism to ensure uh, that the general interest wins out over the private interest while also avoiding protectionism and nationalist responses, which he regards as being mistakes. That's sort of his like 
prescription for what he thinks should happen, right? Correct. But a lot of the book is just descriptive. Correct, correct. That's just the ideology that he's coming at this from. But he is approaching this from a very empirical standpoint. Right, because a lot of it is just attempting to describe what inequality is, how it happens, and whether it's happening now or has been happening, and what the future is likely to hold for it. So... Right. Uh, a Basically, lot of it, the dynamics yeah. are shaped. He identifies early in the book that there is a fundamental force for divergence in the economy. And this is what Marx is talking about with regard to capital accumulating. But he narrows it down and he says it's, uh, capitalism isn't fundamentally rigged at all times in all places, but that when a certain precondition is true, then it does create arbitrary and unsustainable inequality. And that's when the rate of return on capital is greater than the growth rate of the economy as a whole. And that's this R is greater than G inequality that he has historically observed to be true essentially all throughout human history, all the way back to farming era. Well, it's sort of an if-then statement, right? It's like if R is greater than G, if the rate of return to capital is greater than the overall economic growth, then you will have divergence over time. Correct. Then inequality will increase. Um And in addition to that, he says, you know, though it's no law that R has to be greater than G, historically, it has been true that R is, in fact, greater than G. Um, So that's uh, that's the conclusion he comes to from the data that he presents. In the first part of the book, he defines capital as wealth. So capital just means uh, it's just the stock of all the wealth that is owned in the society or in the world. Um, and income he defines as a flow corresponding to goods in one year. So the stuff you own and then the money that you're making. Exactly. It's your bank account versus your paycheck. The capital stock divided by uh, a year's worth of income is this uh, capital to income ratio, right? Which is called beta. So that's how many years of income will it take to get you to the total wealth owned? For example, like in a country. But obviously, the, the higher that is, the, the more influence the capital has, right? Right. It's a measure of inequality itself. So the first fundamental law of capitalism that he defines, it's just an accounting identity, and this is just sort of fundamentally tautologically true, uh, is it's it's alpha, which is capital share of income, equals the rate of return times the capital income ratio. So this is how you can find out how much capital in the aggregate is going to take in from any particular year's income based on just how much they already have and the rate of return. Uh, The example he gives, which these orders of magnitude are roughly historically relevant, is that if uh, beta is 600%, so the capital income ratio is is six times uh, the national income, and the rate of return on capital is 5%, which is close to the uh, historical average, then uh, capital share of income for that year will be 30%. 30% of all the income will go to capital, the other 70% will go to labor. Just as a typical example. So uh, those are, that's the massive uh, force, basically, uh, for uh, divergence is this R is greater than G inequality that we see very persistently throughout history. There are forces of convergence as well, and growth, uh, economic growth, is the big force of convergence. So he goes into detail into why, first off, if the economy grows, obviously labor will earn more relative to the old accumulated stocks, right? Uh, John, like we were just uh, talking about, Oh, yeah. I gave just a simple example is if, if I have $100 and Ted only has $1, so that's massively unequal. Right. But then the overall economy grows and we both gain $100, then now I have uh, 200 Right. 
and he has 101. And so now instead of me having 100 times what he has, I only have twice what he has, roughly. Right. If new tastes and skills emerge, then mobility can increase, which doesn't necessarily help overall income inequality, but it does add to elite churn. That assumes that that the elites are not good at adapting. Well, it just means that uh, they're no better than adapting than average uh, folks who are not elite. Although my, yeah, my intuition is that, you know, the more resources at your disposal, the more advisors you have, the more you're going to be able to adapt, potentially. Potentially. I mean, that's actually a really interesting question because a lot of the reasons that startups in general can compete, right, is usually that they're more adaptable than older, more established companies that have more riding on old methods. True. And I think there is a certain amount of like social calcification that happens in an institution as it gets older. But I guess you kind of have those two competing forces, which is like sort of the being fluid and flexible the way that a startup might be. As right. And comp- close to the ground, close to people's needs. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe, yeah, maybe you Versus mean like having resources. More in touch, basically, is right. kind of a way to say that. Yeah, more in touch. Yeah. So they might have that advantage, but then they have the, the disadvantage of far fewer resources. Right, right. So then it depends on what kind of thing are they innovating in? And is it the kind of thing where resources give you a huge head start, right? I sure. mean, if you're trying to drill for oil, that's one thing. If you're trying to write an app, that's something else. Right. uh, You know, you could see that uh, there's probably a lot more disruptive innovation happening in the app space than the the oil rig space. There's a low barrier to innovation (laughs) in terms of resource costs in that space. Right. So so resources buy you less, basically, in that space, and flexibility buys you more. Got it. One of the things that Piketty talks about is in the past, most economic growth has been directly related to demographic growth. You know, one more person has one more person's worth of productivity. And if the rich had more children commensurate with their amount of richness, then they could just split those inheritances up and they would disappear. And it would be actually a massive force of convergence. But the observed behavior of rich people, particularly in the West, where we have the most rich people, has been, uh, but also in Japan, has been that as people get richer, they have fewer children, not more. Right. And so uh, we've seen that being actually a, a force of of divergence in our world so far. But that's nothing, again, it's not a hard set economic law. This is a cultural reality that uh, people are choosing to have fewer kids. Um, it's not necessarily true that uh, in all places and in all times, that'll be the fashion. Well, you could definitely see how in the past that probably or, or could have been very different. Right. One way we could really aggressively combat inequality if we wanted to would be to encourage or even require rich people to have more kids. Which is funny because it's totally counterintuitive. Like if if... If you suggested to someone, like, would having rich people breed more increase or decrease inequality, I imagine that their first intuitive response might be that more breeding rich people would mean more inequality, but but it's quite the opposite. It will split their money up among more souls. And so if we assume that, you know, individual people have the same or roughly the same chances to be of value... Uh, it would be uh, it would be uh, definitely something that would reduce inequality. This would be a pretty absurd law, I think. Uh, it would be an absurd law. I think you'd obviously have to allow for adoption or like mon- monetary sponsorship rather than literally taking children into your home, uh, or people would revolt. Oh. But I think that honestly, that that's something that could be considered. Um, Forced adoption would be a really weird form of taxes. If like if like the more like right, wealth but it you would had, tie the more you to the to the well being of a particular child, which might make you more inclined to pay. 
That actually sounds like kind of a nice vision, but of course it's ridiculous. I mean, it's it's obviously not politically feasible, and it's nothing Piketty talks about, so sorry. We're, I'm, we're a little off I'm topic. getting off on a tangent here. One last thing I want to say before we move on to part two of the book, I know we've just been covering part one, there's only four parts though, so don't worry, is that he uses the existing UN projections, uh, uh, future demographic growth and economic growth for his central scenario. So the point here is that Piketty's theory that he's positing is that you can predict the inequality in the future by knowing the growth rate of the economy and the rate of return on capital. And since historically the rate of return on capital has been basically a constant at 4 to 5%, he thinks that basically by just looking at demographic growth and economic growth, he can predict future inequality. So when he looks at the UN predictions, which um, make a couple of interesting assumptions, he sees inequality going up. For inequality to not go up, since he's assuming a uh, rate of return on capital in R of about 5%. Right. Like economic either growth economic would growth. have to be at extremely high levels. Right. Ha- levels basically not seen other than in the very few years right after World War II. Um, but just continuing with the book, the next part of the book is about capital dynamics. And he talks about how capital's rate of return has essentially remained unchanged because that sounds kind of like a big assumption. But uh, he does go through the data and he goes through the metamorphoses of capital, like in the old days, obviously capital was agricultural land and uh, then capital became factories and uh, housing. And in recent years, capitals become largely financial assets and computing assets. And throughout that time, the rate of return has been the same. So the rate of return on, uh, on a farm was about 5% and the rate of return on owning a factory was about 5% and the rate of return now on owning stock and housing um, assets is about 5%. Yeah, I mean, that seems sort of strange that it would always be the same, right? It does, and he doesn't really offer a reason for why it's like that. He says he, you know, he says that it appears to be independent of various cultural and uh, technological uh, realities, but that uh, beyond that, this just seems to be the rate at which capital grows. Um, and of course, capital does have value in society. Uh, so it's not, you know, it's, it's uh, clear that it should command some rents. But exactly why it commands exact, uh, this amount of rent so consistently is a central mystery of the book. And it's something that, again, he just looks at the data and he says, show me data that says otherwise, but this is what this data shows. And so for now, I'm taking this as an assumption. Um, for whatever reason, this just happens. He, he justifies his data extensively in this section, and, and then he comes to this next major law. This is his second fundamental law of capitalism, which is that beta, the capital income ratio, is equal over the long term to the savings rate over the growth rate of the economy. So this is an asymptotic rule. You, you tend toward it. Uh, he says it takes about 50 years, and the consequences are a little bit hard to, to think through, so I'll just I'll go with his kind of catchphrase, which I think is very nice, which is that in a low growth economy, given low economic growth, the past will eat the future, which is to say the uh, the existing stocks of capital will be too great for the new savings that uh, individuals who are making money uh, create to compete with them in any serious way. The rate of return on capital will be enough higher than the low growth uh, that uh, that the past money will always grow at a faster rate than the new money. And they'll always have divergence. Uh, the next thing that he talks about in part two that I think is really important is 
the elasticity of substitution for uh, of of capital for labor. So how easily can capital do a job of labor? Um, now, uh, this is uh, just a concept in economics. So in, in a theoretical world where the elasticity of substitution is zero, that means more capital does no good uh, whatsoever. So if I add, uh, if I have one worker with one machine and I had a second machine without adding a second worker, I get zero additional work done. Because that worker that has two hands. Two he, hands, he's done. Yeah. He's finished. Um, it, and those, those machines take a full worker's full attention. Uh, that's a world of, of zero substitution. Obviously, that was the world that we lived in all the way up until the early uh, Industrial Revolution, and it's the world that Marx is assuming, and so it's not uh, valueless to think about that world. But we don't live in that world anymore. Uh, on the other hand, infinite... Um, elasticity of substitution means that capital will always accumulate at a fixed rate. Uh, more capital just means more work. Piketty calls this too optimistic, but uh, as we'll talk about a little well, bit Well, that would more, mean robots, basically, right? That's a fully robotized economy. He even says that. He says, imagine a fully robotized yeah. economy. And he says, that's too optimistic. Maybe he's right about that, but I think it's important if you, if you like thinking about abundance economics to think about that, because uh, even if you don't get all the way there, uh, asymptotically approaching that place... Uh, could be really sticky. Which is a point we've made a lot on this podcast, which right. is that if the trend line is towards this, you know, wild, abundant future with these AIs that can completely substitute for human beings, uh, you know, maybe that point is, you know, 200 years out. But clearly there's going to be a lot of interim turmoil because you're not going to just like get there. It's not like the requisite breakthrough is going to happen overnight. overnight. Yeah, right, right. So those intermediate steps are really important. And honestly, my biggest disappointment in the book in general is that it doesn't really address those intermediate steps as much as I was hoping a book called Capital in the 21st Century would. Um, but in reality, uh, what Piketty says, the question is, and I think he's right about this is, is the elasticity less than one or greater than one? We know it's le greater than zero and, uh, we know it's not infinite, but if it's less than one, then the capital share of income decreases when the capital income ratio increases. Uh, however, if it's more than one, then capital share of income increases when the capital income uh, ratio increases. And he does a quick, highly imprecise calculation to try to see whether it's been more or less than one in the last hundred years. And he comes up with an estimate of 1.3 to 1.6. So he's pretty confident that it's more than one. So just to summarize, if it is yeah. more than one, right. that implies that the, the, we'll just say machines for now, yeah. that, you're, that you're giving to your workers, right, are adding a ton of value, maybe enough that they're obviating some of the need for more workers. Right. Right, which is going to not benefit the workers. Exactly. It's going to mean that even though growth is fundamentally a force of convergence, that uh, that uh, the elasticity of substitution is going to allow capital to outrun labor even in that case. And it's going to turn it into a more divergent force. Well, it's going to benefit the people who own the machines, which is the f right. form and of it's, capital. It's not just machines. It's, it's other not just forms machines, of capital, but, but, too. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But since we've talked about this so many times before, I think, like, you know... It, Generally, it means machines in most of the time, I think. Right. Or, well, or technology. he means uh, oh, financial resources. assets. Yeah, you're right. Okay. And, and, and uh, he means financial assets, particularly, I think, in the 20th, 20th century, which is his data set, mostly. It's financial assets that, that oh, okay. really are the capital we're talking about here. We're talking about financing another worker and possibly another machine. Um, but yeah, and then also physical machines, whether in a factory or computers or what have you, also factor into this. They, they would also be... 
capital in that sense. Right. But of course, these things are so different from each other. So like, it's weird assigning one number to it. Well, and yes, they are different from each other. And again, his argument that they are meaningfully similar is, I think, one that you could agree or disagree with. But he does make it explicitly in the book that it's okay to uh, lump these things together because despite these metamorphoses, despite different things being capital and different uses for capital over time, uh, their rate of return has remained constant. And therefore, he says, it's okay to talk about them as one lumped up thing. Right. We're talking about machines and financial assets at, and other and real things. estate. And we're talking about all these things all at once. So if I give a worker more processing power or more money right. or more uh, energy resources or whatever, that's always, I mean, and it kind of makes sense that all in, in a way, all three of those things will eventually hit some kind of cap where that person literally can't Utilize utilize any more of them, and that elasticity yeah. drops below one. Got it. Okay. Right. Uh, uh, but uh, but if in practice it's above one, then we're going to see uh, inequality go up. And it, uh, you know, to, just to be clear, this is only valid. This second law is only valid among forms of capital that can be accumulated. So it's it doesn't, for example, account for pure natural resources. Like if you're literally just chopping trees down or pulling oil out of the ground, that works a different way because that's basically like. It's like you created a it. brand new input from nowhere. Right. Know? So, uh, so he does, you know, he does give you the appropriate caveats of where you can accept, you know, can accept this, but, uh, that's what we're talking about. We're talking Environmentalists about, would hate that idea that it comes from nowhere. Well, obviously, uh, the externalities though are not charged to your account, which is exactly why there are environmentalists, right? right. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't need them. Um, which I think, you know, you could, yeah. I mean, obviously, it doesn't it doesn't sound like good framing for them, but it's it's actually I think why they exist. It's like I've heard uh, <laughs> I've heard it described that historically why uh, you know America is in such a strong position is because of quote unquote free land, which is another one of those right, things. Like yeah, right, that land which, just appeared right there are a whole (laughs) group of folks who would want to i think (laughs) problematize that depiction right Right. but it was it was land that was uh conquered at a a low price you can say that for sure bargain land it was bargain land yeah compared to conquering say parts of europe which took hundreds of years and bloody conflict you know yeah um but yeah obviously that's a pretty insensitive way to describe (laughs) it so sorry if i Offended anyone. Well, that's, um, this is just a I function of how economists talk. In the future, he weakly assumes that elasticity will be greater than one. And he, he sort of says, well, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe future technology will favor human capital over physical capital, but that's not certain, or it could be overwhelmed by other forces. I guess what he's imagining is that uh, future technology changes will be heavily skill biased in the way that like software programming is now. Where well, I, I think there's ways that could happen, though, that I think maybe we've I don't know if we've, I think we've discussed this before, which is that, and I'm just going to use, for example, now that I'm talking primarily about machines and computers, just because that's sort of what we've mostly discussed sure. in the past as the capital in question. But, right. uh, well, you I c- think that's the most important capital yeah. going forward. Yeah. yeah. You could close the gap, um, at the moment that you are actually able to dramatically augment human intelligence, right? That's, that's what closes that gap. Right. Between, or some of the, you know, people like Kurzweil have sort of proposed this sort of man-machine merging. That, right. that, this distinction between the human and the capital uh, could, goes could break away, down. Maybe. Yeah, yeah um, that is interesting. Yeah, and that is maybe the way that... But then that maybe that ruins the whole model. I mean, maybe that's like... Right, well, at that point, we're dealing with a whole different world in many, right. many ways. So anyhow, that's the end of the second part. 
he he summarizes the, uh, the the end of the second part by saying the principal lesson of this part is that there's no natural force that inevitably reduces the importance of capital and income flowing from the ownership of capital over the course of history. So maybe that seems intuitive to you, but if it doesn't, uh, if it seems like the market or free competition should inevitably reduce the importance of capital and income flowing from capital over the course of history, he's got data that says, sorry, but it doesn't. And at this point, the impetus is on you to show data uh, going the other way. Well, and this was ex- this was very intuitive to me for reasons that I gave in a couple episodes ago. We talked about uh, will the future be more unequal, and we talked about the idea of positive feedback loops. And right. the reason this is intuitive to me, and I suppose it was probably intuitive to Mark's way a long time ago for much the same reasons, yeah. is that you know because money uh, gives you so many abilities and it does so much in society that it seems sensible to assume that having more money for all kinds of different reasons that you can unpack and break down, but more money is going to allow you to um, extend your reach and therefore make more money. Right. Right. But of course, uh, you know, Piketty has actually gone to the trouble of trying to prove this empirically, which is, you know, I think it's really admirable. So in the next part of the book, uh, we shift to talking about individuals and cohorts. So basically we start talking about percent. So if you've heard about, you know, the 1% and the 99%, uh, they're discussed here. The, the, the percentages that he finds most interesting are the upper centile, the top 1%, the upper decile, the top 10%, and then the, uh, the middle 40 and the bottom 50 that comprise the rest of people. Uh, he breaks things up that way, and he says it's basically arbitrary to break them up that way, uh, but it allows you to see the structure of inequality and in the way that... Which is sort of a fractal things- structure, right? It's like, you know, right. it, it gets like even... Or logarithmic, or it's like it gets like each like pool of people as you go up gets smaller, and but their share grows uh, exactly proportionately. And you can see uh, that their shares not grow, yeah, disproportionately, considerably disproportionately. And in fact, uh, he does talk a bit about even the top thousandth of a percent, and even smaller numbers when we can get those data, and you see that uh, the pattern continues. He basically just graphs the structure of inequality since the 19th century. So at the end of the 20s, which uh, he refers to as the La Belle Epoque, we would call it the Roaring Twenties, concentration of capital and inequality were the highest in world history. Then there were shocks from 1913 to 1945, World War One, the Great Depression, World War II, which massively reduced the wealth of the top decile, but especially the top centile, uh, to the benefit of the middle 40. So this Middle 40, which had before the Belle Epoque owned nothing and was basically just as bad off as the bottom 50, now started to own about 30%, 30, 40% of total wealth. Almost all of that came from the very top centile, the top 1%. The next 9% more or less stayed where they were. And this is a major difference in the 20th century. It created a patrimonial middle class that drastically increased the political power of those with money. And it also uh, obviously raised the living standards of a tremendous number of people. So it uh, it set the stage for the Pax Americana or the Trenta Glorious or whatever you want to call that period of time from 1950 to 1980. He also makes a convincing argument uh, with data that this combined with policies similar to the income tax, which all appeared worldwide around World War One, And they combined to actually create a period of time during which inequality... Uh, by the way he's measuring it, appeared to decrease from 1950 to 19 to like about the mid-1970s when it turned around. Well, and this is a place, another place in the book where even though like I'm not really qualified to dissect his his data and, and, and 
see if whether he's empirically handling this well or not. Right. This just makes so much sense. If you have a a positive feedback loop that's making the rich get richer, that two of the obvious ways you could disrupt that positive feedback loop are with a you know a crazy war that basically makes everything unstable and just breaks the actual well, it, rules it of the system. It destroys real estate value on a huge uh, scale because you can't sell assets if they're uh, if the government is in turmoil and also because uh, they blew up a shit ton of stuff. Yeah, it, it's a huge discontinuity. Right, you they know, also killed a lot of people. So wealth, yeah. Uh, so people inherited sooner uh, during that time period and the, the total number of inheritors went up. And But yeah, it makes sense that yeah. something like that would act right. almost like a reset button, basically. Yeah, it was. It was a, it was yeah. a global reset button where yeah. the entire colonial world, which was all owned by Europe, was basically let off the leash and said, you own yourself now. I mean, so that's a massive destruction of wealth. Right. And, and then in addition, it also makes perfect sense that some sort of coordinated redistribution of the actual asset in question, yeah. which is wealth and uh, like... Well, which is income, right? Well, income not, and... Not the stock of wealth. It was done wealth. through income, yes. When people look back on that time period of the 1950 through 1980, there's often a question of, well, why did this happen? Was it because, you know, our values were different then? Is it because our position in the world uh, hierarchy was different, etc. And he says you can explain it by these shocks to wealth and these um, progressive uh, taxation uh, regimes uh, that uh, basically reined in capital and ensured that you know people through their democratic institutions had something of a voice in what uh, society was doing. Which makes far more sense to me than, say, Tyler Cowen's explanation for that in The Great Stagnation, which right. is this concept of low-hanging fruit in which he claims that the reason that that period was so glorious was because of these crazy technological innovations, which are, of course, important, like the light bulb and the automobile and et cetera. Yeah. He also was the one where I got that free land from. He That was one of his bullet points of low-hanging fruit. Right. And then the other one was uh, education. Right, basically, literacy. Like, like, like right. public education and bringing that to people. Right. Which I think those things are obviously factors, but if you, you know, all that stuff... I feel like has much more limited explanatory power than this sort of, to me, this more global idea that you would level the playing field by either, you know, resetting the system or by redistributing uh, uh, wealth right. or income directly makes more sense. Right. To me. Well, and remember that Piketty is looking at the globe, not just America, whereas uh, Cowan is talking about America. So yeah, freeland and yeah. education only apply um, to a certain apply part. Yeah very well to America, but in fact, American wealth isn't all that different from other countries' wealth. I mean, it's uh, America is one of the rich countries, but it's not that different from the other rich countries. And The same dynamics are at play. Yeah, I think we can actually explain a lot more of the right. differences. That's what I should say, is that this is a more global perspective. Yeah. Right. Uh, one of Piketty's favorite things to do is to quote from Balzac, and, if, and the most important thing that he mentions about that is what he calls Vautrin's lesson, which is, if you are a young man who uh, has access to uh, society, but not money, should you study and become a lawyer or a doctor, or should you marry a rich heiress? And in the 1900s, of course, it was clear that marrying a rich heiress was the better move. You could never hope as a lawyer or a doctor to make the kind of uh, comfortable living that you would make from 5% a year on land. After World War II, that was not true. It actually was better to be a top earner than to be a top inheritor. And now he's arguing that in, in today's world, it's becoming true again, that once again, inheritance is becoming more important than labor. Right, which I remember reading this and just being like, yeah, that's exactly what it feels like. Because when you describe those two worlds... 
which one do I identify with more? And right. I, I identify much more with the weird, like, you know, with the Jane Austen, 19th Balzac. century Balzac world, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I do too. And and what's really funny about this to me is that in Picardy's data, the year that this shifts is 1980, which is the year before I was born and you were born. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we literally, like our parents grew up in an opposite world than us. I think we, we touched on this, but maybe not exactly in this way. We, we, a long time ago, we did a, a Generation Gaps episode. And mm-hmm. it, yeah, it's interesting that like, this is probably in, another big one, you know, between us and say boomers, the notion that they lived in like a, a world where their labor could get them ahead. Right. Right. It's just not the world that we live in. Well, and the, and the flip side of that is that I think we do live in a world where creativity is so empowered, which is sure. like, which is, I feel like this is a place where I find myself which is like a subset ha- of labor, ha- having like an irreconcilable, like attitude difference with my parents, which is like, they don't, under- they wouldn't understand, for example, why I'm doing this podcast right now, right? which is something that they couldn't have even conceived of doing right? or wouldn't even had had the technology to do. Like, why would I do this when I'm not making money for it? Right, right. Uh, well, of course, <laughs> you know, I'm weighing this against my actual options for making money, which aren't really great anyways. And, and instead right. I have this, this creative outlet. So it's, it's interesting just to, that that's such a sharp difference between these two generations. Yeah, yeah. And I think that has a lot to do with, um, with these economics. So the last thing he talks about in this section is the illusion of marginal productivity, right? So usually... Uh, very high salaries are justified by the idea that very highly paid individuals have very high marginal productivity. And uh, Piketty just takes this to task, I think, with with data. Because there are multiple countries in the world and they have different tax rules, you can really make good comparisons. And you can see that managers make more in countries that have lower taxes, but they don't correlate to firm performance at all. So the, the higher pay does not come for better performance uh, in a firm absolutely compared to all other firms or in a firm compared to other firms in their field. Uh, but it does get explained almost entirely by what the laws of the given country are and how much they allow people to get paid before they start confiscating their money, which makes sense because you're not going to bother uh, negotiating for money that you're going to have to leave on the table anyhow. Right. It seems like, you know, the, the C- this also just makes sense to me, like that, you know, the CEO of a company and whoever's like the... Or even top management at this the, point. The, the top management, right. say, and then like the next level down. I mean, how much of a difference in skill and intelligence and ability can there really be uh, compared to like how different their incomes might be? Right. Well, the assumption is that they're of these almost infinite differences. That they're these superhuman people, right. which I think makes maybe more sense. Like if somebody is like a, almost a celebrity persona with sort of a cult of personality that itself has sort of like fame effects that might uh, sort of amplify, I think the art, that, that possibility becomes a little more credible. And basically what management does is highly subjective. And if you're not going to use firm performance to set pay, then you're just going to have a situation in which it's a social equilibria, right? Yeah, but people overpay for stuff all the time. I'm right. sure that they're just overpaying for they're what overpaying. they perceive as top talent. Well, right. And it's just climbing to a local e- equilibria that uh, just to, as soon as somebody gets one rate, everybody goes up to that rate. It just sets a precedent. So uh, he basically just puts the light of that, you know, this, this high marginal productivity of, of, of top management is almost certainly illusory. And it, at the very least, it's not based on firm performance, which is, you know, the only thing that actually makes sense. Now we're going to jump into the two chapters of the book where the most interesting stuff is. 
And uh, if you wanted to only read a little bit of the book, I would say read only chapters 11 and 12. They're the last two chapters of part three. And they have uh, just the most interesting stuff in them. And he talks interestingly about mortality, right? And the aging of wealth. And this is interesting for us because obviously on this podcast, we've talked about increasing lifespans and health spans, increasing longevity. Now, he doesn't assume any crazy things happen with regard to longevity, but he shows that it probably won't matter for inequality because wealth at death, which he represents as mu, is generally uh, higher than average wealth, which makes sense. Old people who are or people who are dying generally have more money than people who are still alive on average. That's not necessarily something that you would assume, though. Well, okay, because uh, that the reason that the, I mean that is partially because of this like natural like accumulation of wealth that happens, but you might. He talks about an alternate theory, which is the right. life cycle theory, which is that you might imagine that people would work during their their good years, during their working healthy years, to build up a fortune, and then they go to retirement, and then they retire, and and you'd think if that person was trying to be as efficient as possible, they'd try to spend so that they were hitting zero on their savings just about the moment that they die. Right, right. right. What you're talking about is called the Modigliani Triangle, and it specifically suggests that what, that saving is for retirement, that when you save money during your working years, you're planning for your own retirement, which sounds intuitive. And if, But in fact, that's not the way that the data looks. And what Piketty suggests is that it's due to a lot of different things, but that it's pretty intuitive. He mentions um, wanting to pass things on to your family, wanting additional security. And I, he doesn't mention, but to me, a big part of why the Medigliani Triangle <laughs> yeah, doesn't make sense say. at all is that you're highly uncertain about the timing of your death. Or you're just overly optimistic. I mean, I mean, think everyone's in denial about death. And you're like, what, what are you going to bet on your death? You're going to bet right. that like, I'm only, I'm only planning to live to 80. So I'm only going to save enough money to live exactly to 80. That no, certainly gonna, doesn't seem to be something people, people are, are going to do. People yeah. are inclined to be optimistic. You right. Know? So uh, what he does basically find is that the product of, mu, which is the wealth at death, times m, which is the mortality rate, uh, seems to be independent of life expectancy. And instead, it seems to be determined by the length of a generation. And this is obviously not rocket science. It's because you want to give things to your kids. And what he finds is that as people live longer, they just give more gifts and and leave fewer inheritance. And the inheritance you do get comes later, but it's a larger amount. So it all just washes out. My in-laws just gave my uh, sister and her husband to house. And that's a great example. And, uh, and that's actually the prototypical example that he gives in the book. Yeah. Like the ages and everything that he said, like lined up perfectly to my yeah. experience, actually. Right. And that's just because your in-laws are living longer. You know, a hundred years ago, they'd be dead by now. But since they're living in this technological reality, they get to live longer, but they, they just get to enjoy helping their uh, progeny out instead of uh, instead of having to just know as they're dying that it will happen in their absence. Right, they get to enjoy. Uh, they can go to the house and yeah. see see the kid that lives there. Um, so you can see why people are going to choose um, to to give more gifts. And he does go through data and show that that is in fact the case. And then one last thing that he mentions because some people think that uh, so there's two uses of the word rent. He uses the word rent to mean any money that's owed capital for something it owns. He's not using it to mean market inefficiency, like monopoly rents. The R is greater than G, and inequality is not due to friction, and it will not go away when markets are perfect. In fact, when you make markets less uh, friction-heavy, that helps the capital earn more, because it's often labor that's siphoning off money at the points of friction. For example, if you need to transport a good from somewhere to somewhere else, then you have to pay some labor to move it 
um, or something like that. He shows that making our markets more efficient isn't in itself something that's going to get us out of inequality. It seems intuitive. Well, but, what's but more efficient than, than using no people, right? I mean, exactly. That's... Uh, ultimate efficiency would be, uh, again, the robotized economy that is fully capital substitute. So if, if, you, if that's the sort of platonic ideal, then anything closer to that, you would assume, would... Right. Um, moving on to chapter 12, this is the other cool chapter. This one deals with global inequality. So it talks about um, some of the big fears people have that the oil producing states will own us or that China will own us or something like that. Well, I think the big point in this chapter, or like one of the major points that I took away from it mm -hmm. was uh, the sort of, again, this fractal structure to wealth uh, where, uh, you know, among the very rich, you know, the subset of them that are hyper rich, right? Right. Like do even better. And, and in fact, that, you know, the rate of return to capital, you know, he's using a number R right. that's an average. But actually, right. if you unpack that across different groups... It's unequal returns it's, to capital to different people. And actually, the even among the rich, like the more rich people actually make more off their capital than the less rich people. Exactly. And some numbers to back that up. He compares Bill Gates, which is the world's richest uh, innovator, entrepreneur, and Lillian Betancourt, the world's richest inheritor. She's the, uh, um, the heir of the L'Oreal uh, hair dye fortune. And uh, both of them have similarly sized fortunes. They're uh, at the top of the Forbes list. And uh, over 1990 to, to 2010, both fortunes grew at 13%. Over well, that, a certain size, it doesn't matter whether the money comes from entrepreneurship or whether it comes from pure capital, well, it grows the same amount. Well, that's putting the lie to the meritocracy argument, which is showing that somebody who's, quote unquote, you know, depending on what you believe about Bill Gates, you know, earned his m fortune versus someone who simply inherited it, and yet they end up in the same place. They end up in exactly the same place, but, yeah. But on top of that, in this chapter, he's saying that, you know, uh, the a hyper-rich person might get a rate of return that's more like 7%, as opposed to the average rate of return, which would be like 4%. Right, right. So, yeah, I just wanted to mention that that, that number was 13%, which if the... Is it, number it was 13 that, for them. 13% yeah, okay. for them. So they're at the top of... I mean, nobody's doing better than 13%. That's about the best that anyone's doing. And uh, that's you know more than two times the global average. So that's an ex a significant deviation from the average. Yeah, that's uh, insane. And uh, he also does. What's well, more uh, than three times the global? If the global average is four percent, it's between four and five. So yeah, it's maybe it's it's around three it's times. It's insanely high. It's insanely high, and um, and it doesn't matter where that money comes from. Uh, if it's if you have that much money, uh, you're gonna get an insanely high. Um, Return. He also has uh, a really good uh, data set because the Forbes list is a terrible data set, which he goes over. Um, but he has a really good data set from university endowments in the United States because there are these huge piles of money that have very strict reporting requirements. So uh, he shows that uh, you know Harvard and Princeton and uh, the the top uh, endowments, which are in the you know ten billion dollar range, um, make something like ten percent um, annualized uh, growth. And the smallest university endowments, which are in the hundreds of thousands of dollar range, so they're similar to you know uh, high individual wealth, um, m make something much closer to the global average, uh, something uh, along the lines of four or five percent. So uh, yeah, it's just a continuation of that uh, you know idea that you know more money makes you more money at this positive feedback loop. And he gives two reasons that I think make sense, which is like one of the or one or two possible explanations. Uh, one of which he think he says is a bigger factor than the other. The one that's the bigger factor is, you know, 
basically portfolio management. Basically, the more money right. you have, the more uh, advisors and teams of smart people you can hire to intelligently manage and invest all of that money. Which and is, the more total bets you can make. Right? Well, that's the second one. Oh, the second okay. one that ha- it, that's less it. important right. is that you can uh, take bigger risks uh, or, or spread out your risks more and like that you just have more to work with. Right. right? You have more deal access too because there are some risks that you need a, a minimum amount of money to even take the risk. Sure. And uh, so the larger sum you have, the more of those type of risks you can take. Um, and he does talk about the oil producing uh, countries in the Middle East and or China potentially using this dynamic to eventually run the world, right? So if capital grows and they have these huge sovereign wealth funds uh, that are that are not just reinvesting their savings each year the way rich people are, but are also investing the profits from oil as they as they sell them or the profits from their industrial sector in China. Well, they have the income and the wealth firing on like, you know, all cylinders. So it's not at just right, time. it's not just the cumulative logic of wealth, it's also they're putting their 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 income into it. The reason being that these are small countries with small populations, the oil producing countries are, so they don't have to spend much of their income on on ongoing stuff. Then depending on the price of oil, OPEC might ultimately find itself owning the world. They might own the world in 50 years with the current price of oil. And if he says if oil jumped to $200 a barrel, which you could definitely see happening in a theoretical world, then by 2030 or 2040, uh, they might be the most financially powerful uh, entities um, on earth. And currently, they have about as much wealth as the Forbes list. So that's actually not that much. It's about 3% of total wealth. On the other hand, China and India can never own the world, uh, according to Piketty, because they have giant populations. And even if they were to get lots and lots more money than they currently have, their population would need that money, um, and there's a billion of them to, this is to demand it. another case where this just is what I would have thought anyway. It's of course what you thought, but I think it's important to say these things because people get so worried about you know China taking us over, they should probably be much more worried about sheiks. Um, although, you know, I think what's interesting about sheiks is that uh, if they were to get too powerful, I think our political institutions in the West would simply depose them and take their money. And I think they know that because uh, one thing Piketty mentions is uh, you know they've started to do a lot more investing uh, in their in local infrastructure in their countries and a lot less uh, abroad because they realize it's a lot harder to expropriate you know um, a bridge you built in your own country versus uh, you know some stock in a foreign company that you own. And so um, and then the last oh you think it's just a place for them to put their assets? They're just looking for places that they can put their assets that the West can't. Take we can them. still bomb their bridges. Oh yeah, and I think you know obviously we. We do that periodically in that part of the world, but um, but uh, I think uh, those of them who are our military allies and feel relatively safe from that are are I think looking for any way they can put their money somewhere at home rather than abroad, so that it'll be harder to take. Uh, and then the the last thing in this uh, section that I think is so interesting is that if you calculate all of the statistical accounts for rich countries, you find that they're of a roughly negative balance about four percent this was really funny yeah and if you calculate the um the poor countries um finances you find the same thing they have a roughly negative balance so uh Piketty's, uh sort of catchphrase about what this means is earth must be owned by mars well, well, and, and to be clear the the balance is like you know in terms of like they you know other people own more of their assets, right, than they own of other people's is what that means. Correct. So the negative overall implies that some foreign entity, and this possibly Mars as he jokes, right, Right. would would own the world. Right, right. So, yeah, obviously every country owns parts of every other country, 
And uh, so they all have slightly... Uh, Except for Germany and one other country, right? That's like he mentioned that was actually positive. Yeah, there are a couple of countries that are yeah, positive, but there, it was, but there it was are very like few. two or yeah. something, yeah. Uh, and, and so um, when you calculate all these accounts out, it nets out such that it appears like something on the order of 10% of global GDP is per, per year is just missing. It's just getting paid to Mars as it is, as he, as he describes. And of course, where it's really going is not Mars, it's offshore tax havens. I mean, that's where it's actually going. And we can't trace the money there. Um, so the world's global rich uh, are siphoning off, uh, you know, a, a significant enough amount of money that our global accounts don't add up. You know, to the extent that we have a global accountant, he'd be saying, you know, money is getting lost in the couch here. And, um, and that's something that, again, seems intuitively right. We know tax havens exist and we know that they underreport. Maybe but, both are true. Maybe they have a tax haven on Mars. Well, right. Perhaps that's where the final Mars tax haven, bankers. <laughs> that's funny. Um, that's a funny science fiction. That idea. sounds like a uh, Ray Bradbury story. Or yeah, something. it does. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so that's a really interesting thing that uh, ends um, part three, which is, I think, the most interesting part of the book. Then part four, which I'm going to do really fast, is just his uh, his summary of um, of what to do about it. And basically, he says we need a global tax on capital. Um, that every country that's currently a tax haven is a party to, and he admits it's completely impossible to do such a thing. Uh, he makes a really strong case on the fact that implementing a tax like this wouldn't raise a lot of revenue, but it would create a lot of data that would make jobs uh, such as his and the democratic job of sort of setting these these rates uh, a lot easier. And I definitely agree with that, that more data would be better. And he's basically arguing for better transparency. And then his final sort of well, since we can't have a global tax on wealth, maybe the countries of the eurozone could get together and do a, a global tax, uh, just a, ta a regional tax on wealth there, and start a trend. Um, it's funny he starts high and then he sort of negotiates himself lower and lower. He's yeah. like, maybe we can globally tax everything, and no, but no, we can't. And then well, no. he's like, what we need to do is this, but it's not going to happen. So what we might be able to do is this, which wouldn't do it, but would create some good data and could maybe help us move forward. And I think that that's all well and good. I also feel like it's completely impossible um, just politically. So I don't know what else to say about it. But uh, the argument for why it would be a good idea, I think, is is a solid one. It's just not necessarily an argument that um, that I think matters because it's so clear that the people who would be opposed to it have a lot of political power. Okay, so that's what's in Capital in the 21st Century by Thomas Piketty. Join us next week uh, for when we're going to talk about the book from the perspective of speculation and futurism, as well as discuss some of the criticisms of the book and whether they're valid or not. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.